So our scripture this morning comes from Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in, according with the fa- in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, hey, good morning. Peace be with you. It's great to see you, especially if this is your first time here. If you're returning from the summer break, welcome back. It really is good to see you. And uh, I will say, normally I want to just meet everybody and talk with everybody right after the service. But I woke up with some kind of stomach virus. And so for your own good, I'm going to probably just split after uh, the message. And I haven't uh, touched communion, so you guys don't have to... Uh, experience what I'm currently enduring. Uh, I did read a story this past week that I thought was really profound. In the 18th century, uh, all along the East, East Coast, as our country was being founded, there were two groups of people that were living next to each other, but living mostly parallel lives. You had the indigenous people of America who were living basically how they had for the last thousand years at least, and their way of life and their community, their families, the traditions they had established, they were mostly unchanged. And then you had colonists, mostly British colonists, that had come to this new world, and they had established the most advanced form of economy, the most advanced culture, the most advanced technology of that age. And these two groups lived side by side. And what's interesting in history is that one group began to actually leave their own community to convert to the other group. But what's unique, uh, and historians have struggled to figure it out for years, it was not the indigenous people moving to become one with the colonists. It was the opposite. It was actually the British colonists who looked at the indigenous way of life saw something they had never experienced before and began to leave their own form of economy and culture and technology in order to be in a community, in a family, where they could be connected to something more deeply. In fact, there's not a single uh, evidence or record of an indigenous person leaving their own tribe and joining one of the British colonies, not by their own will. And it's interesting, there's a letter from Benjamin Franklin in 1753 and he's describing how, uh, on occasion, British, British colonists had been captured by the indigenous people. But when they were captured, they were not enslaved and they were not imprisoned. They just simply lived among the indigenous people. And so the British colonists would go and they would, they would take them back and bring them back into the colonies. And Franklin says this in the letter to his friend. He says, yet in a short time, they become disgusted with our manner of life and take the first opportunity to escape again into the woods. Those seeds of radical individualism were being sowed even then. And even then, those early Americans were looking for something 
deeper, something more connected, something more relational, something that was bigger than just the individual way of life. And individualism has been growing in our country ever since. But it's, it's increased and it's sped up, especially in the last 50 or 60 years. Everything, uh, every form of commitment in our society is down, whether it's bowling leagues, country clubs, social groups, church attendance, anything social has dropped in importance in our world. Even though we're busier than ever, we're constantly surrounded by people, we are alone together. And so now we have what our former Surgeon General calls an epidemic of loneliness. It's even affecting our own health. Loneliness has been tied to increased heart disease and cancer, as well as anxiety and depression and a whole host of other illnesses. For the first time in American history, the average lifespan has dropped in the States each of the last three years. And so despite all our technology, despite all these new forms of connectivity that we have, we're lonelier than ever, and it's literally killing us. Last week, I introduced what the German writer Dietrich Bonhoeffer described as the wish dream. Now, the wish dream is the ideal of life as it should be. In the wish dream, there's no suffering, there's no pain, there's no hardship, there's no loneliness, there's no embarrassment. In the, worst, in the wish dream, everything is as we would want it to be. Our work is always high paying and deeply satisfying and we have unlimited time off and we can drink beer and like do fun stuff at work. In the wish dream, our personal lives are always deeply satisfying. Our friends are always there for us, but we don't have to commit too much to them. In the wish dream, we get married at just the right age, not too soon, not too late. And then we have 2.5 kids who are healthy and affordable, you know. In the wish dream, everything is as it should be. And every one of us, we've all fallen victim to the wish dream. In fact, you can trace the wish dream not only back to those early, early settling days where, where the wish dream led people to cross an ocean, to leave one way of life, to risk their own lives, to, to take the lives of others, all in pursuit of this new wish dream of a better place. We can actually trace it all the way back throughout human history. It should be noted, though, that when Bonhoeffer was talking about the wish dream, he wasn't talking about something out there and, and those secular people, those non-Christian people. He was writing about the Christian church. He was writing about Christian community where we have an ideal of what church should be like, where the music is exactly as we would want it to be. The teaching is always perfect. It's always an A+. All of the ministries are perfectly aligned for what we're looking for. But Bonhoeffer says if a, if a believer loves their wish dream of community more than their actual flesh and blood community, they'll end up killing their actual community. And this morning we're starting a new series called A Place to Belong, discovering the New Testament vision for community. And over the next six weeks, what we're wanting to do is, is to set a, a course for this church. And so we're coming up on our first anniversary of weekly gatherings here as a church. It's, it's an exciting time for us, but the first year was all about laying a foundation, our, our doctrine, our, our core group of people, the, the things that we would do, our Sunday gatherings and community groups. But as we enter our, our second year of existence, what we're doing is, is setting a direction. We have the foundation, now we're setting a direction. 
And for us, it could be easy to create this wish dream of a church exactly as we want it to be and let that set the direction for where we're going. But I think what would be far more important is a gritty, committed fidelity to to our actual community. I think what would be better is if we actually adopted the New Testament vision for community. If, If we didn't try to generate something new on our own just from an idealistic view of church, but if we said, what if the scriptures have already provided for us a map to show us where we are and where we can go together? And I think Romans 12 is exactly that map. So that we're not guided by a wish dream, but we're guided by these grounded biblical principles about what it means to be the church and do life together. And so this is sort of a long introduction to this series that I think we've been planning and talking about for at least a year. But I'm excited to spend these next six or seven or eight weeks, depending on what the Holy Spirit has to say, in this single chapter, Romans 12. And in these first five verses, what we're looking at today is not one, but two transformations that take place when you become a Christian. And these two transformations are required for living well in Christian community. The first one is to be transformed because you belong to God. That's the first two verses. And then the second transformation is to be humble because you belong to each other. And that's verses three through five. And so let's start with the first one. Be transformed. You belong to God. Romans 12, of course, is just one chapter in one of the most important books, one of the most profound books in the entire scriptures, Romans is an incredible picture of the gospel of Christianity. The gospel is the good news that life with God is available to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this new life with God changes absolutely everything about us. It gives us a new identity. It gives us a new meaning and purpose in life. It forgives our sin but it also joins us to a new community. And so throughout Romans, Paul is is straining to try to get us to see the importance of God's love for us, that it's totally unconditional, that we're saved entirely by grace through our faith in Christ alone. It's not because of our works. It's not because we presented ourselves a perfect way. It's because of what Christ has done for us in the cross. Through his life, through his death, his resurrection, we are restored to God and everything has changed. Romans 12 is the chapter where Paul describes how this transformation affects our life in the community. And so he says in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so there's a couple things in that first verse that connect chapter 12 to the rest of the book. The word therefore is literally pointing back to the 11 chapters that have come before it. And so all of the teaching of of chapter 12 is based on the teaching of the first 11 chapters. And in the same way, that phrase, in view of God's mercy, that's pointing us back to what Paul has already taught. And so we're jumping into the middle a little bit. But what's clear about the first 11 chapters is that we have received this gift of salvation totally by grace. 
and that changes everything if you think about it. When Paul is describing the mercies of God as, as the foundation for our new life together, the foundation of what he's calling us to, to do, he's not calling us to obey so that we get into the kingdom of God. But he's saying, now that you've experienced the mercies of God, now that you belong to God himself, here is how to live. Everything in our world tells us that you have to act a certain way to fit in. Everything says you have to do something specific to be in the in crowd or, or to belong to a certain group or to get the job or whatever it is. But the Christian gospel is so much better because we receive life with God through his grace in Jesus Christ and then we are called to respond. The motivation is not fear. God's not walking behind us with a stick, tapping us at all times. But instead, the, the motivation is gratitude. That we have experienced this entire inner transformation of our being, and now we want to follow God. We desire to do what God's word says. And that word mercy, it's normally translated in the plural, God's mercies. In view of God's mercies, what Paul has in mind here are actual specific acts of grace toward us. Specific acts of grace toward us in our life, but also throughout creation, that God has brought us into this world in his love and mercy. That he demonstrated his mercy to the Israelites all throughout their history. That he demonstrated his mercy in sending Jesus into the world, and, and most fully that he sent Jesus. And Jesus willingly went to the cross to pay the debt of our sins. These are the mercies of God that motivate us to respond. He's not telling us to act for God's love. He's telling us to act from God's love. We are a changed people, and that changes everything about how we interact with one another. And so the two things that Paul calls us to in these first two verses, the first one, in uh, verse 2, he says, Offer your bodies, or verse 1, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He uses this old temple language that's not as familiar to us, but it would have been extremely familiar in the first century. This picture of an actual animal sacrifice being laid down and killed on the altar. This Israelite tradition that represented the, the guilt that we have as humans against God, that God wipes away through the blood of a sacrifice. It was the premier act of worship. This was called a, a whole offering. There were small offerings. You could offer a dove for certain things, but a whole offering. That was a once-a-year moment of complete atonement for the community. And Paul's saying, offer your life in this sort of way as a living sacrifice. And this gives us the image of something that's both extremely costly. The Israelites would bring their, their most valuable goat or lamb to be sacrificed, but it also gives us the image of something very practical. Just as the Israelites would have to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, there are certain practices and rhythms that we inhabit as Christians today that involve a sort of laying down of our lives and our treasures. It's not a physical sacrifice, but it's in service to the new temple. The New Testament tells us that the temple has been abolished because it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this new temple, it's not a physical one, it's a family. Peter says the new temple is the people of God. And so Paul is calling us to, to offer up our bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, which is singular. Isn't that interesting? 
Offer your bodies, plural, all of us offer our whole selves as one single sacrifice. And he'll explain it as he goes on that we have formed a new body together, that it's no longer just about our individual lives, but together as we lay our lives down for Christ, it becomes one sacrifice that's pleasing to God. The only way for us to uproot the self-centeredness and the individualism that exists in all of our hearts, especially mine, it's to join a community where we're reminded that we have to lay down our preferences, our pride, all of those things as a living sacrifice. The second call is in verse 2. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so Paul is saying your, your mind, your thoughts, the way you approach the world, the way you process information about God and the world, all of that has to be renewed. It all has to be transformed. And there's a singular transformation when we become a Christian, but there's also an ongoing renewal of our minds that Paul is calling us to here. That word transformed, it really frames the entire chapter that we're looking at over the next six weeks. The original Greek word there is metamorpho, which is where we get our biological word for metamorphosis. It means a complete transformation of our being from, from one state to another. It requires an internal reconstitution of who we are. And so just like the, the larva becomes a butterfly, so we move from a state of immaturity to maturity. In a state where we are mostly unformed to a state where we are beautiful and fully formed. This transformation happens not in order that we would please God, but having pleased God, now in a secure place of belonging, we are transformed and we are continually renewed. And so the first thing that Paul calls us to is to be transformed because we belong to God, but the second thing is to be humble because you belong to each other. In verse 3, he says, By the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us, each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same functions, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And so there are these two massive transformations that are involved in the Christian way of life. The first one is what we would call communion, or sorry, conversion where we become a Christian, we are renewed and given the Holy Spirit. Everything changes within us. But there's this second transformation that has to follow, which is a sort of conversion into community. It doesn't always happen right away for a lot of Christians. In fact, it's often just as slow and tedious and painful as that first conversion to Christ himself. So many of our calls to conversion in Christianity have nothing to do with community or with the local church. But Paul is saying that this second transformation has to take place, and it gives evidence to the first transformation. And so the second transformation is this new humility that arises within us to, to let us look with sober judgment at our own selves, not to think too highly of ourselves, not to think too lowly, but to see ourselves as interconnected beings with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The message of Christianity is so much better than just get right with Jesus and go to heaven when you die. It's this entire new world, an entire new family that's opened up to us. 
It's the twofold proclamation of the gospel that we're saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for life in a new community with God and his people. And the message of the New Testament is that we hold these two great truths together, the truth of the gospel and the truth of community. One of the books that we're recommending in this series, it's called Total Church. The authors say Christians are called to a dual fidelity, fidelity to the core content of the gospel and fidelity to the primary context of a believing community. In New Testament churches, the content is the gospel and the context is the community. Our identity as Christians is defined by the gospel and community. Or in Paul's words, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul's often using this language of body. He does it in 1 Corinthians in, in more detail, and he's trying to describe to believers that we all have different functions within the greater body of Christ. And in the same way that a, a, a foot can't uh, say, you know, to the kidney, I, I don't need you. I wish you were more like me. You know, the kidney's like, without me, who's going to filter the blood? Who's going to, I'm trying to remember what the kidney does, process nutrients, I think, in the body, sodium and some of those. Who's going to do that? Ideally, there's two of me. So we, we can't say to one another, we don't need you, or you should be more like me, but we recognize that each person has their own function, has their own role in the greater body. And that moves us to humility. That moves us to recognize that God has made us a certain way and we can be who we are as part of this living sacrifice that we bring before God. I think about our kids as they grow up. It's interesting starting a new church with kids in the, the ages that ours are, 10, seven and a half, and five. In this formative time of life, what's it gonna be like to grow up in a church community that's being formed, that's, that's small, that knows them so well? And it's so exciting for us as parents because when we think about our dreams for our kids' lives, which everybody has dreams for their kids' lives, we're hoping and praying that it's this actual community that shapes so much of who they are. We're thinking, how can we establish a church that they are going to thrive in, that they are going to grow up in their faith, that they're going to look at this body of believers and think that this is, is normal, whether it is or whether it isn't across the world. But they get to experience in this very community love and acceptance and mercy and belonging. And our prayer for them throughout life is, is not just that they would believe in Christ, but also that they would join their own churches when they grow up. That they would have their own Christian believing friends when they grow up as well. That they would embrace this way of life that, that rejects the, the individualism and the consumerism of our day, but focuses on Christ and his people instead. But the reality for our boys is the same as for each of us, that they will probably be hurt in community. They will be hurt in relationship. There's almost nobody who's spent time in the Christian community for a while and hasn't been hurt in relationship. And so it's tempting for me to think for myself or our boys, and I'm sure you've had the thought before, can't we just have Christ without all the messy, difficult believers? It is sort of appealing sometimes. But we look and we say, what is God's vision? What is his means for transformation in our lives? It is the community. All of our hurt that we experience in life is relational. 
embarrassment, loneliness, rejection, loss and grief, abuse. That's all relational hurt. And it's tempting to say, well, I've been hurt in relationship, and so now I'm going to do life without it. But that doesn't realize that all of healing comes in relationship as well. If you've been hurt in Christian community, in fact, the best place to be restored and to find healing is in Christian community. And my prayer for Trinity and for each of us is that we can be a place of healing for those people, not because we're better than other churches or other traditions, but simply because we are aware of what God might do in and through us, that he might bind us back up together again. And for me, I didn't go into ministry. Casey didn't go into ministry. We didn't go into ministry to, to run some kind of church enterprise, you know, with programs and buildings and uh, a lot of giving with these, you know, recording albums, running new conferences. None of that is why anybody goes into ministry. But it's interesting how quickly those of us as leaders and as churches can get confused about what the primary goal of church life is. We can get confused and think that just numerical growth is the answer and the goal of the Christian life in churches without recognizing the whole weight of the scriptures pointing us to the spiritual growth of our members. I know like Casey and others, I went into ministry because I longed to be part of churches where I could, I could belong, where I could be myself, where I didn't have to have it all together as a pastor or minister where we could form a, cre a creative community that's authentic and vulnerable, that's real. And in this sort of community that we can see our kids grow up in Christ, that we can see our non-Christian friends coming and experiencing the gospel, that we can promote the renewal of our city in a way that's meaningful, but also quiet and doesn't draw attention to ourselves. And so just these past two years, a year of Sunday gatherings together and then a year of just building relationships before that, it's been such a joy to experience this community together, to see the relationships formed, to see people growing and changing, to see people coming together and forming friendships, new community groups being started. It's so exciting to be a part of something like this, and it reminds me, even this morning, even when I don't feel good, just how much I love this church. What a gift this church is to, to me and my family and hopefully to all of you. That this is one of the greatest joys and thrills in our lifetime. One of my fears is that many churches lack a, a clear plan to make disciples of their members. A clear plan to see their, their members growing and thriving in Christ. And so what we've been working on for the last year or two years is how do we cultivate the kind of community that will enable, enable our people to grow in Christ? If we're going to go all in on one thing, it's all in on people being formed and shaped in the image of Christ together. And over probably 13 years of ministry and reading and serving in different contexts, what I've seen, and it fits, I believe, with the scriptures and church history, is that we grow by living in God's presence moment by moment, and we grow in community through a set of shared rhythms and practices together. And so as some of you know, we're entering into a season of membership in this church in a formal way, in a way that we haven't beforehand. And we're inviting our people to become members, to join the church, to belong here, 
and to adopt a certain way of life that involves certain practices. But as we've said before, the practices aren't to gain acceptance. They're not to prove that you're worthy. The practices are, up, are to uphold what you believe, to lead you to a place where, where you're in the soil that will produce Christian growth within you. And so the four practices, they're super simple, that we're recommending for our members is Sunday worship, this regular weekly participation in the life of the church where we sing, where we pray, where we lament, confess our sins, we're gathered together. Sunday worship, but also community group. The church just can't be something you do for an hour or two on Sunday morning, but it should fill your life with the presence of God and with the presence of other people. And so we have community groups that meet around the city and a new one that's getting ready to start this very week. We encourage not only Sunday attendance, but also community group participation. The third thing is serving. Serving one another in the church, whether it's a formal way like Trinity Kids or hospitality or on the music team, or some informal way through your community group, we recommend serving every single month. And then lastly, giving. Jesus taught frequently on money and possessions as a way of showing us where our hearts are, showing us what's truly the treasure within our own hearts. And the scriptures teach from beginning to end that generosity is one of the marks of spiritual maturity. And so we believe that these four things, Sunday gatherings, community groups, serving and giving, this is the soil that enables us to grow in Christ together. These are the practices and the rhythms that sustain a life with God that lead us into Christ's image more and more every year. It's not about fitting in. It's not about following some vague wish dream of what we want church to be. But it's a set of practices to ground us in God's word and to ground us in each other's lives. To recognize that we long to belong to people with people who are on the journey just like us. The first question of the old Heidelberg Catechism from 1563. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer that would have been memorized was that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At long last, our search for true belonging can find a happy ending in the local church where we belong not to ourselves, but first to God and through him to each person here. Let's pray.